Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Furl Academy and Law School Life and Beyond coaching series. I'm your host, Aaron Baer, and I'm a partner at Renault & Co., and also the co-founder of each of Forel Academy and Build Your Book. When you're in law school, it's so hard to know exactly what being a lawyer is like in practice, and it's hard to understand how everything you're learning ties to what you might do when you're a lawyer. So each week, I'll be interviewing a different lawyer to learn more about their practice and answer some questions from a group of 1L students at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law at Ryerson University. So without further ado, here's today's episode. Today, we are fortunate to have Jenny with us. She is an incredibly accomplished criminal lawyer. She's won all sorts of awards, and she's taken time out of her day to come speak with us. So Jenny, welcome uh, to the study group. Great. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I want to start with, I know nothing about criminal law. I'm a corporate lawyer. I took criminal law in law school in 1L, and that was the extent of my knowledge. So why did you become a criminal lawyer in the first place? How did you end up where you are today? So I did my undergrad in criminology, and I guess I kind of always knew I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. I don't think I really knew what that meant until I started practicing law. But as we all watch TV and we see what lawyers are like, I just assumed practicing law would look like that. And it's it's very different in practice, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But I don't know. There was always something very attractive about the idea of being a criminal lawyer. And it's something I'm really passionate about. And I truly believe that this is my calling. This is something that I meant to do. And so here I am doing it. That's amazing. So I know every day is different, <laughs> but like, what do you what do you spend your time doing? I spend my day sitting at a desk, <laughs> drafting contracts, talking to people. I'm pretty sure your day doesn't quite look like that. So it was like, what does it look like, or what does this week look like, for example? So it really depends on the week. Um, I have a mixed practice, so I do trials, I do appeals, and I also do some professional regulation work. And what that is, is it's defending professionals in regulated colleges. So I represent a lot of lawyers when they get into trouble with the law society. So if I'm in the middle of a trial, like an actual trial, then my days are spent in the courtroom during the day and then spent at my desk, either at home or in the office preparing for the following day. But if I'm working on an appeal, then I'm usually at my desk reviewing transcripts and drafting the factum. Or if I'm doing some of this professional regulatory work, it depends whether it's something I'm meeting with the clients and and getting information from them, or I'm having an actual hearing at whatever college I'm representing the person at. So that sounds not like what I thought it would be like, at least if all I did was watch TV. So so what do people sort of get confused about? What did you think, I guess, criminal law was going to be like versus, versus the reality of sort of how you spend your time? So I thought that I would win everything because on TV, all lawyers somehow seem to win everything and a case gets handed to you day one and somehow by the second or third day in the middle of a trial. uh, The thing that I think is the most surprising for a lot of people is just how slow the criminal process is. Uh, When a person gets charged, everything is happening so quickly. Suddenly, the police are there, they're arrested, they may have a bail hearing, and all these things are happening very quickly. But once the criminal process actually starts, it's so slow. Uh, It takes a long time to get disclosure, it takes a long time to go to court for trial dates. Uh, It's just a very slow-moving process. It does not happen nearly as quickly as we see on TV. 
that's, I think, part of the reason I didn't want to be a litigator. I like to get things done quickly and keep moving. I don't have, you know, six months waiting for a hearing, a year. I think there was a case called Jordan. That was actually a criminal law case. And again, I say that pretty sure I'm right, but I'm never sure. Um, maybe you want to talk a little bit about what that case was about, uh, putting it on the spot here, but really sort of did it change anything? And it sort of goes to your point about how slow some of this process was. Yeah, so Jordan is a case where the Supreme Court of Canada essentially told the court system, you know, whether it's judges, crowns, defense lawyers, that we can't be complacent when it comes to accused people and their right to have a trial within a speedy time. And so it's essentially told criminal justice system participants that if somebody is charged with a summary conviction offense, their trial must take place within 18 months or sorry, if they have a trial in the Ontario Court of Justice, um, the trial must take place within 18 months. And if it's something that happens in the Superior Court, it should happen within 30 months. I think it did help in some way in that it moved some cases along faster, but COVID definitely upset things because lots of things were put on hold and I've got things that have been rescheduled that have not, like don't have new hearing dates yet. So we don't really know when they're happening. Um, so there's been some movement to make things happen faster, but it's not nearly fast enough. It sort of blows my mind that 18 months is like the <laughs> the timeline that's acceptable. Like that's the expedited version. Like it has to happen within 18 or 30 months, uh, which obviously implies in a lot of cases that that wasn't the case before. And I think in law school, I didn't have appreciation at all for how slowly this process moves. And obviously most things don't go to trial, but but the fact that justice does not happen overnight at least not in the court system, was something that wasn't quite as obvious um, to me. Uh, I'm curious, like, what's the toughest part of your job? Like, like, is it emotionally draining some of the time? Is it, you know, what is what is challenging for you about being a criminal lawyer? It's a lot of pressure because oftentimes I'm the only person that's standing in the way of somebody going to jail. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a person, right? This idea that I am the person standing in the way of someone going to jail. So it's still something I'm learning to to cope with, to sort of separate myself and realize that I am not the reason why this person finds themselves in the situation they're in. If they ultimately get sent to jail, I am not the person making the decision. And all I can do is afford them the best defense I can possibly do. How do you go about managing the client expectations? Because I assume most clients believe they've done nothing wrong. I mean, obviously, some of them know they've done something wrong, but I'm sure they believe you know, they're hiring you, they're paying you, they're expecting results, obviously results in that case, meaning in their favor. And as you said, like that's just not a guarantee. And obviously, even the best lawyer is not going to be 100% successful. So how do you navigate those conversations in reality? And how do you also not take some of this home with you after that result may not go the way you wanted it? So answering your second question first, uh, I do take it home with me. I think it's really hard to let something like that go. And um, it's interesting. I feel like when you suffer a loss in court, it's something you carry with you for a long period of time, but you succeed in court and you're happy for a couple of hours and then you move on to the next file. The happiness doesn't last uh, nearly as long as as the, the loss that you suffer in court, which is unfortunate. Um, in terms of managing client expectations, I would say that I'm pretty honest and blunt when I when I first speak to a client and I tell them that 
I can't guarantee a result for you. Frankly, any lawyer that does guarantee a result for you probably isn't a very good lawyer just because there are so many unknowns in this job. You don't know what crown is going to get assigned to it. You don't know what judge is going to get assigned to it. You don't know what evidence could come down the pipe. You just don't know. So when there's not, you know, you don't know a lot at the outset, it's hard to know what's going to happen in the end. When you've got a file you're working on, you know, in law school, we see a court case and we see the criminal code and there's a test and, you know, you analyze the facts and there's your answer. seems like this process happens pretty quickly. Not much to do. And I know in reality that that's obviously not the case. Like, like, where is most of the time spent? Is it understanding the facts? Is it getting the evidence? Where do you typically spend most of your time? So in terms of where the time is spent, I think, first of all, there's a lot of time spent waiting. You're waiting to get the disclosure. You're waiting to speak to a crown. You're waiting to see somebody in court. There's frankly just a lot of time just spent waiting around. Um, but when you do actually get the material you need to get in order to start preparing for a file, it takes a lot of time just to come up with a strategy. Um, sometimes it seems like I'm not actually working because I'm not at my desk, but I'm constantly thinking about what strategy I want to pursue when it comes to a trial, for example, or how do I want to frame a cross-examination? Which questions do I want to ask first? How am I going to respond if a witness responds in a certain way? There's just a lot of thinking that goes into developing the cross-examination that you want to do or the overall strategy that you want to take. And when you're cross-examining someone or figuring out the strategy, what are you basing it on? Like, I'm assuming you know what the tests are you have to prove and you're trying to or, or disprove, in, I guess, in this sense, someone's accused your client of something. You know, are, are you sort of focusing on the weak points and, and one of those ones or multiple of those angles? Like, how do you go about knowing what's important to your case? Because I think that's one of the challenging parts in law school. And as a new lawyer, you know, as you're hearing all these tests and these rules, but it's hard to know exactly like, what do you, what do you actually do? How do you go about picking apart that argument? So I think first and foremost, what's important is to tell a good story I feel like sometimes when people think of a cross-examination, you're thinking of just areas to attack, but you have to tell it in a persuasive way. So even just by starting off by figuring out who is this person, what is their relationship to your client? If there's a motive, what is the motive? And when you start to kind of develop a theme or a storyline, you can then incorporate the things that matter in a cross-examination, things like inconsistencies they've made in prior statements or um, other evidence that contradicts what they're saying. So even though there's this test that you or the Crown has to meet at the end of the day, I think it's important to still remember that when you're doing a cross-examination, you have to have a narrative that develops as you're cross-examining the person. That makes a lot of sense. And then I know one of the things you mentioned earlier on was disclosure obligations, which I'm the last person who's an expert, but my understanding is there's a difference between the civil law system for disclosure and the criminal law system. And again, I never understood this part in law school. Maybe you want to talk about that quickly, just to sort of frame some of the differences between criminal law versus the rest of the litigation system. So I think um, I'll start off by just talking about what criminal law used to be. So there used to be a time prior to a decision called Stingecomb, where as a lawyer, I would show up to court and I would have no idea what the evidence the Crown had. I wouldn't know what the witnesses said, what the police officers say, what evidence they have against your client. 
it's just a zoo. You go up and you have no idea what to expect in this trial. Um, as the case law develops, there is now a requirement that the Crown has to provide you with disclosure. They have to provide an accused person with the evidence they have against them. So what witnesses have said, um, any external evidence that they've gotten, all of this needs to be disclosed to you. And it's obviously really important because you need to know what the case against you is in order to mount a successful defense. The difference in the civil law sphere is that there is, I guess you would call it sort of like a reverse disclosure obligation where both sides have to tell the other person what the evidence they have against or what the evidence they have is. So both sides know what the other side has and there's no real element of surprise because you can prepare your witness just to anticipate the evidence the other side has. There are some areas of law now in criminal law, for example, the area of sexual assaults where we're moving towards a reverse disclosure type situation where if you want to pursue certain lines of uh, cross-examination, you have to disclose some of the evidence that you have to the other, to the crown. So there's some places where there's a bit of uh, parallels, but for the most part, it's the crown that gives us a disclosure and we can keep um, what we have uh, sort of secret from them. Amazing. And, and maybe we'll go high level because, because again, I sometimes find these things are helpful. Um, this is maybe a little theoretical here, but like, what is the point of criminal law? And I don't mean like, what is the point of having laws? I mean, but like, what is the goal of the criminal justice system? Because sometimes I think if we can frame it from that perspective, it's easier to understand and people don't get confused because the goal of the civil system and the goal of the criminal system, to my knowledge, are not quite the same. I can tell you what I see as my goal. And I suppose for me, I think the dominant goal in the criminal justice system should be to avoid wrongful convictions. Like I really do believe that that is something that's paramount that should be at the forefront of all people in the criminal justice system. And in order to really safeguard and prevent wrongful convictions, we really have to keep the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt as strict as possible. So you have to hold the crown to the strict standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, because once you start to let that standard slip, you may be having a host of wrongful convictions that we may never realize. And what does beyond a reasonable doubt actually mean? I know, you know, that there's no percentage kind of thing, but like, how do I know when I'm getting close to that? Like, what does that look like in reality? I don't know. It's very hard to define. And it's interesting because I can look at a case and review a case and intuitively I know if I can find reasonable doubt in this case. Like, it's something that's intuitive to me that I know. But the way that the, the court decisions have defined it is, um, it's less than absolute certainty, um, but like, that's it. I don't know. I don't really know what it means, but I think it's it's really, I think everyone just fundamentally understands you know, you know what, what it is. There. You know what yeah. it is, but it's just hard to articulate what it is. That makes sense. And then there's another thing I was just thinking about as you were talking that I never understood in law school, and that's the interplay between one fact pattern and how there can be criminal cases and civil cases and all that stuff at the same time. So maybe if you want to quickly talk about that and sort of how a real life scenario, let's say sexual assault or insert something else, how that would work on both systems and how they interrelate, because that's not always clear in school when you're taking one course at a time and another course at the time. And often those really no one's talking about how they work together. Yeah, so sometimes a person could be charged criminally with sexual 
sexual assault, for as an example, and they're, it's the state that's prosecuting them. So it's the crown that is trying to prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the difference in the civil sphere is you could have these criminal proceedings taking place and then have a separate civil suit against the accused person because of this uh, alleged sexual assault. The standard in a civil case is a balance of probabilities. So it's different and it's a lower threshold than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So sometimes just sort of from a practical perspective, what happens is, is if there are these, I guess, concurrent litigation that's happening for somebody charged with sexual assault or something is happening in the criminal court system and something in the civil system, it may be wise to wait for the criminal system to play out because if the person is found guilty, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then it's going to be, it's pretty much a guarantee that you'll meet the standard of balance of probabilities because it's a lower standard than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, that, that makes plenty of sense. Someone's asking a question, which I think is a good one, maybe a little bit confusing for my brain, but I think you're going to understand it better. You know, you're trying to respond to this evidence that's being given to you, I guess, by by the crown or by, you know, in, in your context. And you also have your own arguments you're going to want to be advancing that might be separate from that evidence. But obviously, if they have evidence, you need to respond to it. Like, how do you balance sort of the story you want to tell, you know, separate from that evidence with the evidence they have? How does that all fit together? That's why a lot of thinking takes place. And I feel like I spend so much time thinking about things more than actually sitting down and writing things. Um, You find a way to, um, the way that I like to, I like to do it is sometimes I don't find it as persuasive to just to stand up and solely respond to what the crown's arguments are. I think you really want to push your own narrative first And then in the course of pushing your narrative, respond to the Crown's arguments. I always just like to think of it as, well, if I was the judge and I was sitting there and I was listening to arguments, what am I going to find to be interesting? Am I going to find it interesting for a lawyer to stand up and say, well, the Crown said A and I say B, the Crown said C and I say D. It just doesn't sound, it's not fun to listen to, right? But if you have a lawyer who's standing before you and is telling you a story about your client and all the sympathetic features about him or her and how they've ended up in your courtroom and the reason why this proceeding is taking place and highlighting all of the positive things that came out through his or her evidence, I think it's just much more powerful than to just simply respond to what the crown is saying. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's, there's a lot of psychology that goes into this, right? Like at the end of the day, you're an advocate, you're trying to persuade somebody. And while we think, oh, well, the best logical arguments will win, you know, judges, at least for now are all human and humans are susceptible to psychology and other things. And having that good story, you know, when you hear good speakers, you know, think of Obama, think of people like that. They're good at talking. They're good storytellers. They're, they're, that's what people remember. And there's nothing worse than listening to a boring presentation where someone's just droning on about facts that, yeah, that's accurate. But, you know, your eyes are just glazing over and you're zoning out. So so that makes a lot of sense when you frame it that way. Um, you know, in the early days of law school, uh, you know, you're dealing with some basic kind of crimes. Maybe it's assault, um, battery, you know, who knows what else. Um how do you go about, you know, let's say you get something new, you know, there's something you've never dealt with before that you've got a client who's accused of, and it's a criminal thing. Where do you go? I'm guessing you go to the criminal code and you start there and then case law or, or how does that work? So I like to try and find an annotated criminal code because um, in, in those kinds of annotated criminal codes, they'll tell you 
what the, the offense is, and then it'll list sort of the main cases that relate to that offense and tell you what the law is, like tell you what test applies to that particular offense. It's always a good starting point because you just need to know the basics and then work your way out to figure out um, if there are any cases that are directly applicable to your fact scenario. And one of the things I definitely did not appreciate, especially when I was doing some research as a summer student at my first job, was the legislation is not the answer, right? It's the legislation plus case law interpreting that legislation, whether it's the criminal code or something else. So if you just go to the statute, like the criminal code, and say, hey, well, here's what it says, it's possible that it's been interpreted that this is unconstitutional or this these, these words mean something else. And if all you're doing, and correct me if you disagree with me, if all you're doing is going to the statute, you actually might be wrong, even though what you're reading says one thing. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Um, so much of law is about interpreting what the legislation says. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation where there is conflicting interpretations of the same piece of legislation. So you can't just stop at the legislation itself. You have to look further to see what the cases say about that. So real life, you've got a test for, for some kind of offense. You read the case law, you get a sense of what's out there. And the case law, not quite on your side. Do you, do you just give up and say, Your Honor, you know, this is not good for my client? Or, or what do you do in practice? How do you, I guess, do that law and fact analysis and really make a good argument in favor of your client? You have to find a way to distinguish the facts of your client's case from whatever the case law is. And um, part what you know what I do is if if the case law is not very good for my client, I think it's important to go to your client and tell your client, well, this is what the state of the law is. And uh, given the circumstances of your case, it may not be wise to go to trial, but it's ultimately your your decision on what to do. So that it's important for the client to know when they're making an informed decision of the path that they want to take. But if, if the case law always went my way, uh, I would win a lot more, right? So your job, unfortunately, is to try and find a creative argument to distinguish the facts of your client's case from the existing case law. And that's one way where I think law school actually does a decent job on exams of at least trying to sort of simulate this, right? Because, you know, you're taking, here's your fact pattern. Uh, you know what the law is, hopefully, that's part of your exam. And then it's that analysis, that's the money maker, right? And trying to say, you know, these facts are really similar, these facts are really different. And obviously on an exam, you're sort of pointing out both sides, whereas in real life, you know, you're advocating. You, you obviously have a client to represent and obligations to defend them, and you're, you're taking a somewhat slanted, I guess, angle. But But that's a real life thing, and it's also what law exams are often trying to get you to do. So understanding the facts of similar cases, stuff you've studied in class, and then on the exam and that fact pattern saying, okay, well, this is similar, but there's a little difference here, here, and here. And, you know, maybe that means this test isn't satisfied. Maybe it is. That's what we're really trying to do. And that's a lot of real life, right? Is it's not going to be an identical scenario. There's going to be something slightly different. And you've got somebody on the other side who is obviously trying to take a very different position than you. Um, someone's asking about bail submissions, which I don't know how much you deal with, but any advice? I think they've got an assignment on this. Any recommendations for preparing bail submissions? A topic I know absolutely nothing about. Uh, um, hmm, interesting. I think. I think um, I don't know what the assignment is, but I can sort of tell you what I found to be the most important part when you're That'd making submissions um, on a bail is 
the strength of the bail plan is very important and how your sureties come off when they're testifying is also really important. So I think it's important to highlight how serious of a job the sureties are taking the responsibility of a surety as, you know, they, they appreciate what that role entails, how serious they take it, um, how serious your client takes being on bail and their appreciation of what happens if they breach their conditions. I think with bails, this is sort of my practical advice is that um, the main concern that a justice of the peace or whoever is presiding over a bail hearing has is, can we trust this person to actually behave? And if they're not behaving, can we trust the sureties to call the police and pull their bail? And if you can, through uh, examination in chief of your witnesses, get those two points across to the justice of the peace, I think you'll find yourself to be quite successful. And you mentioned the word surety a lot, and I, I'm sure some people know what it is, but not all. Maybe you want to just give a high level explanation of like, what are their sure. obligate? What's their role? Yes. And I guess what are their obligations in this process? So a surety is somebody who the court essentially um, puts the responsibility of watching an accused person on. So if an accused is released on bail, they're going to have sometimes a mom, a dad, a sister, a brother, a friend who acts as a surety um, who will ensure that they're following all of their conditions. Um, I like to, when I explain the role of a surety to a surety when I'm preparing them, I talk about something called the three C's. So the first one is to, um, now I can't remember what they are, but is to ensure that they go to court when they're required to. That's the first C. The second C is to ensure that they're following the conditions of their bail. That's the second C. And the third C is to call the police if they're breaching any of their conditions. So it's difficult for people when they're testifying or they're frozen in fear because this is so new to them. So if they think about it as three C's and they can always go back to those three C's and I feel like it's a helpful way for them to understand. And I'm always harping on, on the students that Google is powerful. So as we were talking, I looked up the three C's because I had absolutely no idea what they are. So they're <laughs> capital, capacity, and character. So never, never underestimate Google. They're always a good resource. And in fact, the first link was to a Lexology article, which is another resource I always recommend. Lexology being an aggregator of articles that firms have written. So we've all learned something. I knew none of this stuff. Um, in real life in bail, like, what is that process like? With, with If you have a client who's up for this, are they... Do you only get it? Like, does it normally go their way? And do you see people often violating it or are people usually pretty good? I think it's all, I think it's difficult to say, you know, what happens usually or doesn't or what's the common occurrence. I think it all just kind of varies on the person that you're dealing with. Um, uh, what I can say about bails is that um, you know, I was just talking about how slow the process is, how difficult and slow and agonizing and things move at like a glacial speed. But bail hearings, on the other hand, they move so quickly and it's actually kind of terrifying how quickly they move because it's such an important part of the process. If a person is denied bail, they could be in jail for months like years just waiting their trial. And it's such an important part, but you find that a lot of people are really eager to want to have their bail hearing done quickly because they just don't want to spend a couple of days in bail. So sometimes I have to have a pretty, um, you know, intense conversation with a client and a client's family saying, I know you really want your bail hearing to happen as soon as possible, but 
we're not there yet. I think it's going to benefit you if we take a week to figure out the best sureties for you, figure out the best bail plan, because you really only have one shot at getting bail. And if you get denied bail, you're going to be sitting in jail for a long time. That's that's a great point. Um, the public doesn't always have the, or, or lawyers don't always have the best public reputation. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, uh, def- criminal defense lawyers, <laughs> probably not the greatest either. So I'm curious, like what happens when you tell people what you do and also maybe like what the public is not understanding about actually the incredible stuff you are doing and how I think criminal defense lawyers are keeping this justice system afloat. So the quintessential cocktail party question I get when I tell people, uh, I'm a criminal defense lawyer is, Oh, like, how do you defend people who are guilty? Like, how do you defend people charged with murder? How do you defend people charged with sexual assault? And it was a question that really bothered me early on in my career because it felt like they were just questioning like who I was as a person because I really do view being a criminal criminal defense lawyer as part of me. But um, the older I've gotten, I've really just sort of stopped caring about what people think of me or what they think of my job, because I just know that the moment this person is asking me this question, if they're ever charged with a criminal offense, if a family member of theirs is ever charged with a criminal offense, a friend, I become the most important person in their life. And they like worship the ground that I walk on because I'm literally the only person standing in their way from going to jail. And so people don't really appreciate the importance of a criminal defense lawyer until someone they know or they themselves find themselves in that position. And I think it's just really difficult to try and explain that to somebody who's never been in those shoes before. So I've honestly just stopped trying because I sleep perfectly well at night doing what I do because I know what I do is very important. I love that answer. That That's fantastic. And it's, it's such a good way of explaining it. Um, I think we all know the criminal justice system is not perfect at all. There's biases based on race, on gender, on whatever else. And you're a female BIPOC lawyer, all that good stuff. I'm curious two things. The first you know, one is sort of what are some of these issues systemically that you're seeing in the system? And my second question for you is, like, if you want to talk about it, have you had to deal with any of this because of your race, your gender, all this stuff? And how have you dealt with that over your career? So I think the... The I guess the main observation I've seen is that um, the the criminal justice system, the people in power in the criminal justice system are predominantly white and they're predominantly white men. And so if you have a racialized accused person going into court, um, they see a white male judge, often old. They see a white male crown, often old. If they have a jury, it's sometimes predominantly white and you just feel like an outsider, like you feel as though you're not part of this in crowd and you feel like you're very different from them. And it's a very powerful feeling. It's a feeling that makes you feel isolated from the process. And it's scary, right? You feel as though the people who are going to be deciding your fate have no way to connect with you. They're not. They don't have the same experiences that you do. And so I see that a lot with my own clients. And I find that a lot of the reason why a lot of my clients are comfortable with me is because I look like them. Like I look like their sister or their mother or their aunt. Like I just look like somebody that can relate to them and have some similar experiences. And so I think it's really important for me to 
be where I am and practice this profession because at least I provide a little bit of comfort to the accused people who look like me. That makes sense. Are you finding the system is getting like they're, they're starting to slowly understand some of the stuff better and take some steps or, you know, I'm not even going to pretend anything is close to perfect. Like is stuff getting better? Is it getting worse? And I'm curious how COVID and the virtual hearings and maybe a lot of the stuff you do is in person. I, I know certain things probably are in the criminal space, but are we trending the right direction or even though there's probably a very, very long way to go? I think it's, I've certainly seen a change in this profession where at least we're talking about these kinds of issues. And so it's important to have this discussion because if we're not having this discussion, then we're not moving towards anything. But sort of on the subject of Zoom hearings, um, it's interesting. I feel like people view Zoom hearings as really efficient and cost-effective and people can call in from anywhere. But the thing I've been really trying to um, drill into to other people like judges and crowns is it just, it, it doesn't feel right. You know, you have somebody that's charged with a really serious offense or any offense and it's, it's so scary for them and to just for them to sit here behind a screen and have people testify behind the screen. It doesn't feel as important as it's meant to feel. Whereas if you're in a courtroom and you have the judge who's deciding your client's fate, they actually have to look at your client. They have to breathe the same air. They have to like hear them cry, like all of these things, all of these emotions. You don't really get as much of an emotional impact on Zoom as you would in a real life setting. So I think it's kind of unfortunate that we're moving towards Zoom hearings. And I'm really looking forward to being back in a real courtroom because it just is not the same. It's not a good substitute for the emotional impact you would normally get. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's clearly quite different dealing with two enormous companies suing each other over some word in a contract, right? Or, or things like that. And in my practice as a corporate lawyer, I mean, worst case scenario, I cost somebody a bunch of money. Uh, and not that they're happy, that can affect their mental health, all that stuff. But in your case, you know, real people, real life, real consequences. Is there, is, are, do you envision there being like a different default where criminal hearings, at least the original trials are in person? And other stuff is is not or like, how do you sort of see that playing out as we figure out what this world ends up looking like? I think there's going to be a bit of a mix. And I think it would also depend on whether an accused person is comfortable proceeding with an electronic hearing. If an accused person is comfortable, then I think it's hard to argue that we shouldn't be having them. But if an accused person really insists on being in court, I think we're going to have in court hearings for that. And I'm curious if you've done either a jury trial since COVID started and done it remotely or just in general, you know, maybe what's some stuff about juries that that people don't often realize? Because I think, you know, we know the word jury. I know I'm banned from being on a jury, which is fantastic. That's one of the good things about being a lawyer. That's the extent of my jury knowledge other than TV. So I'm curious. I know that was two questions, but one, jury experiences over COVID and two, stuff that people may not realize about juries, jury selection, all that good stuff. So I haven't done a jury trial over COVID, but um, I have done jury trials. And I I think the thing that people, um, the interesting thing about juries and the thing I didn't really appreciate is it's really strange to, to be in a courtroom and you have these 12 people that are constantly looking and listening to what you're doing, but you're not allowed to talk to them. 
Like, it's just like so strange. They're so important. They play such an important role in the courtroom, but you're standing there, you're making all these submissions, you're making arguments, they're listening to you, but you can't like have a conversation with them. And I'm sure it's quite difficult on their end too, because I'm sure they're like dying to ask you questions about stuff, but they're also not allowed to ask questions until the very end when they're deliberating. So it's just kind of a weird thing where you have an audience that is really involved in the case, but you have no ability to actually speak with. And when you're doing a jury trial, who are you talking to? And I, and I ask that more in, in, not in the actual way, but like, you know, who are you trying to speak to? Are you really speaking to the jury, but to the judge? Or are you speaking to the judge? Like, how do you sort of think about navigating these two different audiences, especially with one person with a lot of legal knowledge and a group of people that presumably don't have a ton? So it's... um. It's, it's interesting you ask that because that um, it's also something that I found kind of difficult because there are just so many people there and so many people that you kind of need to speak to and you don't even really know who to look at. Like, do I look at the judge, the witness, the 12 sets of eyes staring at me? Like, you don't really know who to be looking at. And so what I like to do is when I'm cross-examining a witness in a jury trial, I like to position the podium so that it's next to um, the jury so that at least I'm kind of close to them, even if I can't speak to them. And you ask a question, they say something and, you know, if it's like a good point, you kind of like look over to the jury and go, hmm, right? Like you have to do something like some kind of verbal cues to at least like indicate that you realize that they're there and kind of emphasize that, oh, something good happened, paid attention. So you kind of, you find ways to communicate with them without actually speaking to them. And I think um, the thing I have to constantly remind myself is you can't forget that the jury is there just because they're not talking doesn't mean that they're not there. So you have to try to make them feel included in the conversation. That's fascinating. I would not have thought about any of those things. So that, that's really interesting. Um, I want to get back to some substantive questions, but one, one last question for me or for you first, that's sort of on this topic. One thing I was always surprised by, again, as somebody who doesn't do litigation, went into law school, you know, didn't know any of these things, is how long some trials or hearings can be. I always assumed, you know, on TV, everything moves quickly. And then I hear, you know, my old colleagues would be like, oh, I've got a, they weren't criminal lawyers, but they were litigators going, oh, I've got a six week trial or, you know, we're booked for six weeks or we're booked for however long. And I remember going like, holy crap, like, (laughs) what takes so long? And obviously that's my naivety. I know there's all these witnesses and this and that, like how long are some of your trials and, and how long do you take preparing for them? Yeah. So it, again, sort of depends on the kind of case it is and uh, the number of complainants involved or the allegations. But um, a murder trial, for example, could take months. So I've done a murder trial that took three months long. And so it's a lot of time. Um, The time spent on it goes towards pretrial motions, picking a jury, just calling witnesses and closing submissions, and then the jury takes the time to decide what they want to do. So it's grueling because you can't really stop working, unfortunately, because you're in court and then you come back, you prepare for the following day. And on the weekends, you're meeting with your client if they're in custody. So it's a nonstop thing that just happens for however long the trial takes. Sounds very time intensive, but I'm sure also can be extremely rewarding, obviously, if things work out. Um, let's go back to a few basic kind of questions. So there's all these terms in criminal law. One is like subjective versus objective fault or intent. And I remember being confused about those two. And there's some modified objective test, if I'm remembering correctly. 
maybe you can help me and the people listening here uh, understand maybe how this all sort of fits together and how they work. So it's difficult to explain. And I think it's helpful for all of you to know that it's difficult, even for someone like me who's been doing this for 10 years, because it's just, there's really no clear definition of what it is. I just like to think of when you were thinking about the term subjective, it's yourself. Like, what did the person think when they were doing something? And then if you're thinking about objective, it's um, like, what would the reasonable person think when this thing was happening? And so just look at it from the individual as being the subjective and the objective as society at large or like a reasonable person would think. And, and how do you know when one of them applies versus the other? Is it in the criminal code? Is it usually based on case law? Like, like I get the difference, but how do I know when I'm supposed to use one and when I'm supposed to use the other? So I, like I said, annotated criminal code is, is great. Um, the criminal code itself is really useful, but the annotated ones, there's like Trekmere's annotated criminal code. I think Alan Gold has an annotated criminal code. Um, they just list really important cases at the end that will just tell you this, you know, this is um, like a like this is a subjective mens rea case or this is an objective basis it'll just tell you what the test is that, that makes sense and that's helpful and i know uh in general real life litigators you know use this all the time there, there's an equivalent for civil procedure and all that sort of stuff and someone who's you know done some of that work for you already which is great we've got a question someone's asking you know how do you approach trial scenarios versus ones that don't go to trial uh that could be maybe in the context of some interim steps or maybe some cases where you know you're not quite sure where they're going to head and like how much do I have to prepare? Are we going to settle? But how do you approach these kind of different things? So I, the way I approach it is, is when I get a case, I first approach it as okay, can the crown even prove this case? Um, is there enough there for them to have a reasonable prospect of conviction, and can they meet the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt? And this is important because even if a matter ultimately doesn't go to trial and you're trying to resolve it in some way, uh, it is really persuasive to be able to go to the Crown and say, you don't even have a case here. You can't prove this case against my client. And so I, I like to start off by thinking in that. And then I go to the client and I give them their options. I say, okay, well, we can try to resolve the matter if that's what you want to do, or we can go to trial. And depending on what their instructions are, I switch gears. If I'm going to resolve a matter, I really think about um, what the client can do or what information I can get from the client to show them in the best possible light. Um, oftentimes, when a person is charged with an offense, this is the lowest point in their life, and it doesn't always reflect who they are as a person. So I think it's really important to highlight that if this is in fact an aberration of their character, that this is who they really are. And these are the circumstances that led to this person being charged so that I can go to the crown and explain the whole context behind what happened. I'm guessing uh, probably like me, but in very different contexts, you don't just provide legal services. You probably provide a fair bit of emotional counseling unofficially and things like that. Like even for my clients, like on an M&A deal, which is night and day different than being charged with murder, there's a whole element of empathy, of emotional intelligence, of of managing stress, of playing psychologist, of just listening. How much of that are you doing? Because my guess is there's probably a lot, especially in those early stages. Yeah, there is. Although I have to say lately, 
um, I've been telling my clients, like even at initial meetings, that my role is to give them legal advice and that I am a lawyer. And I explain to them that being charged with a criminal offense is really emotionally taxing and it's going to be a long drawn out process. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to be difficult on them. It's going to be difficult on their family. And I encourage them to get a therapist, to get somebody to talk to about this process because it's going to be very difficult. And I say to them that I'm not qualified to be able to give this kind of advice or support to them. Obviously, I do. But I think for me as well, for my own mental health, like it's really hard for me to cope with the difficulties of this profession while also taking on the, the stress of my client. And so I can see where sometimes I get really anxious and I get like a million emails from them about one thing. And I have to try to find a way to say to them that I think the source of all this is you're feeling a little bit of anxiety. Maybe you should revisit what I said about trying to speak to somebody about what you're going through. It's just and better for everyone in the long run. Yeah. And I assume obviously, you know, if you're dealing with people like on like the white collar side, they might be able to better access some of that stuff, you know, in a timely manner and, and have the money to obviously it's going to be different depending on who the accused Absolutely. Is. But I think it's important to flag it for them early on that this is something that they're going to yeah. have difficulties with because it's not even, um, um, you know, we think about therapy as like going to somebody and talking to them in like a formal setting, but going to, if you're religious, like, going to church, talking to a pastor, having certain kinds of resources made available to a friend, a family member, I think it's important to say you need to now look around to see who can provide you the emotional support because yeah, you can't be the I can't, person. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's not fair to you. So I'm curious, we'll wrap up with these last couple of questions here. You know, it, it, for some students who feel like they may not be the strongest writer or they may not be that confident, you know, with oral arguments or, or things like that. How did you feel, I guess, in law school? Were you comfortable writing? Were you comfortable speaking? And then how did you get better at this stuff over time? Yeah, I. it's weird. I know that here I am speaking and all of you are probably thinking, oh, like I like public speaking and I like being in court and giving speeches. I hate all of this. I absolutely hate public speaking and it makes me very uncomfortable. But I always just think of being in a courtroom like, having a conversation with somebody. You're really just having a conversation with a witness. You're really just having a conversation with a judge. And if there's a jury there, you're having a conversation with these 12 people that aren't even allowed to say anything. So when you kind of think of it in terms of a conversation, I think the anxiety around public speaking gets alleviated a bit. And in terms of writing, um, I'm not a great writer. Like I've improved with time. And I think you have to just sort of tell yourself that writing is something you have to work on and you can benefit a lot by just asking other lawyers to send you a sample of their writing. Like if you read good writing, you can learn how to become a better writer. And there are books that you can get on how to write better. There are articles you can read. And so these are resources that you should look out for. And I think it comes with time. I was reviewing some of our, our first year associates work, you know, earlier today, for example, and I'm like, oh man, this is not as good as I would like it to be. And that comes with time. I was a terrible drafter, contract drafter my first couple of years because I didn't do that in law school uh, and I didn't know how to do it. And it took time and just learning. And then you just get so much better. It becomes, becomes a lot easier. And especially in 1L, it's all brand new. It's a whole different style of writing. 
Um, and it's, I think, constantly a journey. And take that feedback, take those grades, even if they don't go your way, as just a sign that you're learning. You know, you've got some feedback, some data. Um, Jonani, I want to give it one last question for you, which is what I wrap up each week with, which is what advice would you give to your 1L self or to the 1Ls that are listening here and are with us today? What advice would you give to them? I think the advice I would give to myself and to give to all of you is um, there isn't just one type of person who can be a successful lawyer. I feel like uh, you see on TV what your stereotype of a lawyer looks like and sounds like and acts like, and then you go to school and then you see all of these super assertive, confident people. And you think, oh my, like this is what being a successful lawyer should be. And I wasn't that. I am super shy. Um, I'm quiet. I don't really like to speak up in class. I didn't feel super smart. So I was like, I'm never going to succeed as a lawyer because I just don't fit the stereotype of what a lawyer should be like. And it took me a long time to realize that you can succeed in this profession no matter the personality that you have, um, no matter the confidence that you have. I think if you care enough about your clients and you work hard, you can succeed in this job. I love that advice. And it's a great way to end. So thank you so much for joining us. I think everyone learned a lot. I learned a lot. And we're so glad you took time out of your busy schedule to come join us. So thanks again for coming. Thank you so much for having me.